A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Bibi is back. להבעת אמון אדירה. בנימין נתניהו נתניהו's Mr. Netanyahu's success and his ability to create a ruling coalition has depended on an alliance with religious Zionism, a far-right bloc. That partnership could intensify tensions with the Palestinians. Violence in the West Bank is already on the rise. It could also make it harder for Israel to build on its delicate relations in the region and those across the globe. The Economist asks, I'm Anne McElvoy, and this week we're asking, what does Benjamin Netanyahu's comeback mean for Israel and the world? Later in the show, I'll speak to David Makovsky, a senior fellow at the Washington Institute, about what direction Israel's relationship with America could take as Mr. Netanyahu returns to office, and whether bringing the far right into his coalition will test Israel's burgeoning relationships in the Middle East. But first, I wanted to speak to Anshel Pfeffer, who's not only The Economist's Israel correspondent, he's also Mr. Netanyahu's biographer. Anshel, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me, Anne. So Anshel, we'll talk about Mr. Netanyahu's comeback in a moment. But first, let's talk about the man himself. You've spent years observing him. To your mind, what drives him and how does he view power? Well, Netanyahu wakes up every morning and he goes to fight for the Jewish state's survival. He's not, in his mind, just a mere prime minister. He is someone who is ensuring Jewish survival. And he has totally identified the personal and the national destiny. At the same time, when he gets up every morning, he's also going to fight a political campaign. He's a constant campaigner. He's constantly trying to win over voters. He's constantly looking at his rivals. On the one hand, he is a statesman. And on the other hand, he's a campaigner. And those two personalities are constantly there. Well, it was interesting the way you, you started that. It sounded like, like here is a man, he's a, a true believer. He's someone who gets up every day, as you put it, to fight and to fight for the state of Israel. And at the same time, you wrote recently that he's the archetype of the modern populist nationalist, which sounds... I don't want to say it's a paradox, but it does sound a bit more self-interested, perhaps a bit narrower. How do you square off that stance? Well, it's like I said, he sees his own destiny, Israel's destiny, as one and the same. And that's how he can be this campaigner and he can use populism and nationalism, while at the same time, he is also a statesman. And people don't often like hearing this, that A man who is both a populist can also be an intellectual and someone with a wide perspective, both of Israel's place in the world and of global politics. He really is very unique in the fact that he does have all those things at his fingertips. 
He's the longest serving prime minister in Israel. What do you reckon the secret to his durability is? Well, it's a really good question. He's 73. He's a grandfather. There are not that many politicians of his age still around. He's been doing this for nearly 40 years and he still is full of vigor and energy. I saw him a couple of weeks ago at a campaign rally, one of the last campaign rallies of his campaign, and he was striding across the stage, making his stump speech like he's done so many times over more than three decades. There is something driving him that gives him so much more energy than any other politician. How has Likud, the party leads, changed since he's been in charge? They've changed enormously. Netanyahu first came into the Knesset Israel's parliament in 1988. And in the time that's passed since then, Likud has changed very much. It was a party which had liberal wings. It's a party which had many leaders waiting to fight for the leadership. There's no one there anymore besides Netanyahu. It's a party of little politicians all wanting to bask in his smile, all trying to show how loyal they are to him, the leader. The membership is very much enthralled to him. It's a much more religious, much more nationalist party than Lilikud that he came to all those years ago. And it's a party which has now embraced also far-right politics. And that's best seen in his embrace of the religious Zionism list, a right-wing bloc which includes the Jewish Power Party led by its leader, Itamar Ben-Gvir. Who is he and what do he and religious Zionism stand for? So Itamar Ben-Gvir was on the farthest fringes. He was an untouchable of Israeli politics. Just a couple of years ago, he led his party, Jewish Power, in an election on its own and they won only 19,000 votes. They didn't win any seats. They were far below the electoral threshold, which is 3.25% of the vote in Israel, they were seen as an irrelevance to Israeli politics. One of the things Netanyahu wanted to do was he wanted to bring together every tiny splinter party on the right and bring them together into merged list of candidates so he wouldn't lose even one vote and they would cross the electoral threshold. And once Itamar Ben-Gvir was suddenly embraced by Netanyahu, suddenly brought in from the cult into mainstream politics, many Israelis suddenly felt, actually, we have someone here that we will consider voting for. And we just saw the the result last week. 11% of of Israelis voted for religious Zionism, which is now a list which includes Jewish power in it. And how do you see the relationship unfolding between these two powerful characters? What sort of agenda do you think Mr. Ben-Gavir will push for? So for Netanyahu, this was a technical thing. He just wanted to get some more votes which weren't being counted towards his majority. He never imagined that he would be creating here a large far-right party, which would now is now a potential senior partner in his coalition. And he has to find a way to accommodate their wishes. They have lots of demands when it comes to policy, when it comes to appointments. Ben-Gvir wants to be Israel's next public security minister, which means he'll be in charge of the police. Netanyahu is rather cautious. He doesn't want that to happen, but he may have no choice. He's unleashed something here that he has to find a way of containing within his coalition if he wants to get back into office. What do you think does explain the rise of Mr. Ben-Gvir and his religious Zionism pitch? It's now the third largest block in Israel. Is that reflecting shifting attitudes in the society? Is it pushing those attitudes? And who are the voters? Does it reflect something in Israeli society? Yes. Does it mean that 11% of the voters necessarily agree with Itamar Ben-Gvir's basically fascist views? 
I'm not sure that's the case. There was a feeling in this election that people are fed up with the parties that have tried over four and now five consecutive election cycles to form a government. So someone new coming along and saying, I'm going to bring order, I'm going to take control of this chaos, and I'm going to show people that we can have a functioning government here. That person seems to have won over a lot of voters. Does it mean that necessarily all these people agree with his policies? It's much too early to say. What do you think the chances are of the centrist and left-wing parties either backing Mr Netanyahu in order to keep the far right out of government or perhaps mounting a challenge to him himself later down the line? Well, the centre-left parties have fought now five elections in less than four years, basically on one principle, that we can't have a prime minister who is facing criminal charges. But the alternative to that is them joining the Netanyahu and breaking their principles. And so far, they've ruled it out. They've ruled it out again this week. On the other hand, if they don't go into coalition with Netanyahu, we'll see this new radical coalition, which may make major changes to Israel's legal system. That's one of the things they're talking about. And some of that damage could be irreparable. And also there will be this legitimization of the far right as a partner in government. So they really have a very difficult dilemma now whether to abandon the principle that they've ran on. But at the same time, if they don't agree to go into a coalition with Netanyahu, the coalition Netanyahu can form now is one which is pretty awful. Where does all this leave the Arab Israelis and the Palestinian communities? So we're seeing within the Arab Israeli or the Arab Palestinian community, which is about 20% of Israel's population, we're seeing different attitudes there as well. There are now three different parties representing that community. One of them, the United Arab List, which is more Islamist inclined, have actually said in quite openly, we are not expecting to solve the Palestinian issue. Yes, we're Palestinians, that's our identity, but our first job is to represent our constituents. They have immediate needs, they want better roads, they want better schools, they want the police to fight crime. And therefore, we need to be part of the government, even if it's a government which is not going to address the Palestinian issue. Then we have another party, which is what was once the Communist Party, who are saying, well, we will be part of a coalition if it's a coalition that we can agree with, but they're not ruling it out. And then there's another party, which is sort of the most nationalist Palestinian party, Balad, who are saying, no, we won't be part of any coalition. And the fascinating thing that happened in this election is that the party which is most integrationist, the United Arab List or Ram, they came out first in the Arab community. So changes are, are afoot there as well. Now, this new government will not have an Arab party in it. They're very much a strident, almost Jewish supremacist coalition. But the fact that this is now part of the discourse means that it's no longer out of question and they're certainly players in the internal Israeli political game. Is there potential for tensions to rise in the West Bank and Gaza? Well, there already is uh, some escalation in the West Bank. We've seen in the last few months in a number of places, mainly around the cities of Nablus and Jenin, more battles between Israeli security forces and Palestinian militants. And that's slightly gone down in the last few weeks, but the potential is there. The prime example is what's going to happen in Jerusalem if the new government allows more Jews to go and pray on Temple Mount, which is also the site of the Al-Aqsa Mosque. That could certainly lead to escalation in the West Bank. Mr Netanyahu describes himself as a staunch believer in liberal democracy. What do you think that embrace of far-right parties and forces means for Israeli democracy? So until Netanyahu has campaigned 
within Israel as a far-right populist, the kind of which we see in other countries. But when he's actually come to power in government, he's been much more pragmatic and balanced. He's also tried to build coalitions with parties to the left of Likud, so he'll have more room to maneuver. So he can say to people on the far right who are making various demands of him, say, look, I would love to agree with you, but I can't because my coalition partners won't let me. And that's allowed him to be relatively balanced and as he is quite risk averse and even statesmanlike. However, now because of the trial, he is also now boxed into a corner where if he wants to gut the Israeli legal system to get himself off the hook, he needs to go with the far right. And this has kind of created a new situation for Netanyahu because we've always seen him in the past campaign as a populist, but rule as a pragmatist. And now for the first time, Netanyahu the campaigner is taking over Netanyahu the prime minister. The shape of the next Israeli government is yet to be seen, but who Mr Netanyahu folds into his coalition is being closely watched by the White House. President Biden and Israel's leader have known each other since the 1980s, when they were both young politicians. Their relationship has been tested many times, especially when it comes to Palestine, and it may be rocked again if the far-right bloc forms part of the new government. Now it's a very difficult moment because it could go into two directions. I call it door number one or door number two. David Makovsky is an expert on U.S.-Israeli relations. He worked on peace negotiations during Barack Obama's presidency, and he's now a senior fellow at the Washington Institute and host of their podcast, Decision Points. Door number one is Netanyahu essentially is able to maneuver these junior coalition partners If he's able to maneuver them, he'll go back to who he is. Basically, he's pretty risk-averse. That's door number one. Door number two is that the junior coalition partners turn out to be much more complicated than Netanyahu thinks, and they hold the balance of power. And as such, he's kind of at their mercy. That means fasten your seatbelts, put the trade tables in the upright positions. It's going to be a very turbulent ride. Part of it, we will have a sense probably very soon, maybe in a week or so, where does he name, for example, this one fellow, Itamar Ben-Gvir, to be the internal security minister. That's the portfolio that's in charge of the Temple Mount, Haram al-Sharif. And Itamar Ben-Gvir is a provocateur, some would say pyromaniac, but now he could be in charge of the fire department. So this is why door number two is a much more difficult proposition that has implications for the U.S.-Israel relationship and really for Israel's relationship in the Arab world. I'm in the Persian Gulf now, and I've had conversations about this. We're going to come on to perhaps that broader picture in just a a moment, but if I could just stay for a second on the nature of the relationship and what is happening at the moment. In a call with Mr. Netanyahu this week, President Biden said the strength of the U.S.-Israeli partnership is based on a bedrock of shared democratic values. Well, big words. And if Netanyahu does form a coalition with the far-right religious Zionism bloc, which wants to chip away at democratic institutions, whose leader has called for so-called disloyal Arabs to be expelled from Israel, where does it leave that kind of bedrock of shared values? Well, I think that the U.S.-Israel relationship has been based always both on shared interests and shared values. To lose that is to lose something very fundamental in the relationship. And that will have also an implication for American Jewish support. 
Netanyahu knows this. So I think he's hoping that these junior partners, they talk a very tough game, but once they're in the coalition, they will be maneuverable into the zone that is much more traditional. But the question is, that could be a miscalculation too. Tensions with the occupied territories have been growing, not least in the West Bank. The UN's recorded a rise in the number of attacks between Jewish settlers and Palestinians. What position do you see Mr. Netanyahu taking with the Palestinians as he returns to office? And deep down, what does he really want the solution to the Palestinian question to look like? I think he knows that if Israel doesn't reach a negotiated outcome, this is going to be bad for Israel. Whether it's going to be the classic two-state solution, I think, though, we don't see this anytime soon. If you look at the Venn diagram between Israel and the Palestinians, they do not overlap on some of the core issues. So he certainly is not going to be able to configure a coalition that's going to solve a problem that hasn't been solved. And as someone who worked in the office of the Secretary of State during the last U.S. effort to solve this problem in the Obama administration— I can tell you the Venn diagram here doesn't compute. What he's going to want to do is basically to continue what his predecessor did, Naftali Bennett, Defense Minister Gantz, which is to say, okay, I can't solve the big picture, but maybe there are economic initiatives here that could improve the standard of living, that could bring more jobs for Palestinians in the West Bank, and maybe even for Gazans, although he wouldn't advertise that. But his junior partner, this RZP, Religious Zionist Party, is going to want to go further. They're going to want to legalize a lot of illegal outposts. Uh, The difference between the illegal outpost and a settlement is the illegal outpost has not yet been authorized by the state of Israel, the government of Israel. But they're going to want to push him more. And they might try to push him to try to annex even parts of the West Bank. I don't believe he'll do that. He made a commitment to the United Arab Emirates, which is the most popular peace agreement that probably Israel's ever made, that this issue will be pushed off for four years. That was in 2020. So I don't see him doing that. But the question is, is this junior coalition partner again, are they going to do things pro forma or are they really going to say, hey, we hold the balance of power here, not you. And this might be called the Netanyahu government, but it's really different than the past Netanyahu governments. We want it to have a much harder edge. So for decades, American presidents have hoped to find a pathway to peace between Israel and Palestine. President Biden said he supports a two-state solution. Nothing has changed big picture on that front for a very long time, but he hasn't said much or done a lot towards that Do you think that Palestinian statehood is still a priority for the administration in Washington? Theoretically, yes. Practically, I think Biden's style is, let's solve problems behind closed doors. You don't go public against me on on Iran. I don't go public on you on the West Bank. And it'll never be formulated as that kind of quid pro quo, Anne. But I think that kind of approach of we can have tough conversations inside the Oval Office But we're not going to go to the White House podium to the press and talk that way. So I really don't see that there's going to be much progress here to a two-state solution with this government. You talked about the Abraham Accords earlier, that the normalization of relations with several Arab countries. What do you make of the status of that 
Now, do you think that these burgeoning relationships, which was, I suppose, the, the hope there, will be tested or even tested to falling apart if conflict between Israel and the Palestinians rises? And where does it leave the future of the Accords? It's not just back to square one in that instance. Look, the bilateral relationship between the United Arab Emirates and Israel is like a rocket ship. It's like something we have never seen before. In two years, they've had over $2 billion per annum now in trade. 450,000 Israeli tourists came here during a pandemic. It's a love fest that we've never seen because usually the peace with the poor Arab countries, there's baggage because there's been conflicts over borders and the Palestinian issue. Here, there's no conflict over borders. It's taking the two most dynamic economies of the Middle East and saying, okay, Google and Microsoft work together. But what if Itamar Ben-Gvir becomes the police minister in charge of the Temple Mount? And there's going to be riots there all the time. I do think this is going to be a problem because I think once it morphs from a nationalist issue to a religious issue, which the Temple Mount Haram al-Sharif is, this is the most flammable piece of real estate in the Middle East next to the Straits of Hormuz, then I think it puts them in a very difficult situation to keep growing that bilateral relationship that has taken off like wildfire. Let's talk about the goal of a normalization of ties with Saudi Arabia. President Biden got into some hot water, some quarters of, of commentary by being seen to be open to it, not least, of course, in the wake of the murder of Mr. Khashoggi. Do you think that goal is still achievable? Well, I think Netanyahu's approach is very much going to be, I know MBS, he'll have a secret meeting with MBS, I believe, within two months of coming to office. I would almost bet money on this. They've already met before. And he'll say, look, I know this issue is a derivative of U.S.-Saudi relations. I get it. I can maybe help you in Washington, but you've got to help me and do gradual steps here. It's a recognition that this is not a bilateral question. This is a trilateral question. And here's where Netanyahu, I think, will want to be of assistance to MBS. And not that there's going to be the great leap like there was with the United Arab Emirates. I don't think so. The Saudi issue is always more complicated. But I do think that in a kind of a gradualist, incrementalist phase, for Netanyahu, this is the legacy. If he could do peace with Saudi Arabia and Israel, that for him will be the crown jewel. And people won't say, talk about his trial. They won't talk about, well, you didn't solve the Palestinian problem. It's like, I'm going to take the Abraham Accords and I'm not just going to deepen it, but I'm going to broaden it. Let me ask you to conclude. Overall, do you think this partnership of Netanyahu with the far right, which is obviously causing quite a lot of concern, does it affect Israel's standing in the world? Or, you know, are we possibly seeing something which is a quite heated response to something a bit shocking, but can in some way be calibrated and dealt with? Look, it's a great question. And I do believe in the resilience of the people of Israel, for the most part, who say, look, these guys represent maybe 10, 15% of the public. That's not where 85% of the public are. But it's a case because of the nature of coalitions where small differences could have outsized consequences. And if someone like Itamar Ben-Gvir, I keep coming back to him as police minister, you know, he could do a lot of damage. And that means there's a huge onus on Netanyahu 
to somehow maneuver these guys away. And if not, then broaden the government, call in these other parties that are not part of the coalition. But there's no doubt that his trial is complicating all this. In a normal period, he wouldn't look at these guys. But now he feels dependent upon them because of his own personal situation. And that's very sad. David Makovsky, thank you very much for joining us. Delighted to be with you, Anne. And do let us know what you think about anything you've heard on the show. Write to us at podcasts at economist.com or you can tweet us at The Economist. You can read more excellent reporting on the return of Benjamin Netanyahu and what's happening in Israel and the West Bank by Anshel Pfeffer and the rest of our great team in the Middle East. Find it on our website. You will need to be a subscriber to read it, so if you're not already, why not become one today? We've got a special introductory offer just for our listeners. Visit economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. My producer is Alicia Burrell and the executive producer is Hannah Mourinho. I'm Anne McElvoy and in London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.